Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia and here's my co-host Morgan. Hello. So thanks to a very kind and supportive Patreon subscriber, we are now currently, this episode, being paid to watch The Phantom Menace. If you heard last week's episode on Cycle, you'll know the deal already. Basically, we recorded a full-length commentary track, so if you're one of our Patreon supporters, you can watch the film with us talking all the way through. (laughs) If if you so wish to do that, I like to think we were quite informative and entertaining. But this is the main review, this is obviously the main content. It's going to be different if you've already heard uh, the commentary track. So... I'm not going to bother trying to give a recap of what happens in The Phantom Menace um, because the story arc doesn't have an arc as we will discuss (laughs) in the first section of our podcast, but it is chronologically speaking the first installment um, in the sprawling Star Wars saga. It is both written and directed by George Lucas, which I think a lot of people will agree is detrimental to its quality. And um, (laughs) it's about the early years of Anakin Skywalker, a character who arguably isn't the protagonist of the movie and only shows up halfway through, so that's an interesting creative direction. He's definitely not the protagonist. Yeah. Qui-Gon Jinn is the protagonist I mean, of this Qui-Gon film. I mean, Qui-Gon Jinn, as we were discussing, 100%. is the best character and the best performance. But, like, yeah. I don't, anyway, um, Morgan actually was watching this for the first time since she was, like, 10. I rewatched it in 2015 before The Force Awakens, but um, what was this like as an experience for you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the fact that we were watching it together made it enjoyable because we were just incredulously laughing at the absurdity. I think if I had been watching this by myself, it would not have been enjoyable. So, I mean, it was fine. I was amazed by how nonsense it was in the sense that there literally is no story, which I had not recalled and then watching it at a certain point, I was like, oh, nothing is happening. It's not going to happen. There will be no plot to this film. And once you accept that, I think it becomes a more sort of just, you got to just roll with it and then it's okay. But wow, yeah, there that's, is that's truly just, just... One of the many elements where there is this whole kind of deep world building situation going on that really satisfies me. But in terms of actual storytelling, it's like, what are you doing? (laughs) Because the the actual thrust of this story is meant to be introducing Anakin as this, you know, cataclysmic figure, but it's a tragedy because at this point he's an innocent child and you know he's going to be screwed up. And it's like, thematically that is present, (laughs) but it's actually only like five minutes of the movie. (laughs) It's just astonishing they spend, we were discussing this on the, the commentary, we will be kind of repeating ourselves a little bit, but hopefully not too much. They spend this like endless period of time on this underwater chase sequence that means nothing, has no significance, and isn't even, I think, that entertaining. And I was like, oh my god, what was anyone thinking? Well, he had full creative freedom. Yeah. That was the problem. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, right, there's there's a lot of stuff in this movie because this came out when we were both 10. I obviously fucking loved this movie. This is like the one movie where I was the correct age to be watching the new Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously I was like, this rules. I had a bunch of Lego. I read loads of little prequel books about Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi. But 
unlike like when you rewatch the original trilogy there's loads of stuff which is childish and stupid but it's still really good in the same way that stuff like indiana jones is good because it's just excellent blockbuster filmmaking and in this you get stuff like the extensive cgi fish chase sequence and you're like why am i here (laughs) i mean yes just i genuinely was boggled particularly because as i said on our other recording i have had no memory of it like I don't didn't remember this film well at all, but there were plenty of images and moments that I remembered, or like the general thrust of it, whatever. I think and the pod that, race still works. I yeah, like the pod race. It's too long. It's way too long. But the general idea and aesthetic of it is totally fine. But I had no recollection of them going underwater at any point. And so I was just like, what is happening? Why is this happening? What? But you do get the sense that he was not motivated by plot in any way. It kind of a little bit of a, a James Cameron avatar situation. Avatar is way more of a plot than this, but you can tell watching that, that he was so much more interested in the world building. Yeah. I mean, kind of the um, magic of star Wars is they just have all of this subsidiary material about it, literally every single character that's on screen. Yeah. And they made up, you know, entire species that are, seen for like half a second in the movie and that's where i mean george lucas i'm not one of these people who's like oh he sucks you know obviously he is in some ways a genius because he's created this incredible thing and brought the right people together to make it good but also when it comes to writing like functional human dialogue and apparently structuring a movie like i think it's like with this one it's like because the original ones are like the ones that he was like more into the writing aspect are just kind of basic hero's journey. Whereas with this one, he's trying to do this huge space opera. And after rewatching it this time, I realized that what he actually wanted to be doing is something that you couldn't do in 1999, which is a massive big budget Game of Thrones miniseries. Because if this was yeah. like an eight episode, like hour long episode series, you could have the like peaks in the story in each episode instead of this, where it's just this weird kind of, there's a series of arcs that are peaking at different times. And then when you get to the final battle, it doesn't seem big enough for it to be an important final battle apart from Qui-Gon Jinn's death, which is like the one emotional moment in the movie that actually fully lands. (laughs) Yes. Well, because he's the only person who seems like a person because Liam Neeson is so good. It's not that his writing is markedly better than anyone else's. It's just that Liam Neeson like walks in in his poncho and is like... (laughs) I am here to rule this film. You're like, great. Just I keep just, going. I adore him. I adored him when I was 10 and I adore him now. I fully, I fully agree. I remember like the only thing when I watched it when I was a kid that I remember being genuinely upset by was him dying. And at the age of 10, I wasn't watching a lot of movies where people died except the you know, parents in Disney films or whatever, and that doesn't really count, except Mufasa, which of course was deeply traumatic for me as a five-year-old or whatever. Um, But this was genuinely like, oh, oh no. And it's because he's the only one who actually seems good and real, and everyone else is just walking around like a robot saying <laughs> bad George Lucas dialogue. <laughs> and it's also one of those amazing characters that you get in this type of film that has this combination of like genius and absolute nonsense, where it's like, I think textually, he's obviously meant to be this sort of maverick, but he's also, the performance-wise, it's like, you know, he's this paternal figure and he's really wise and you're inspired by him and stuff. 
But in terms of what he actually does in the text, a lot of it is not so much maverick as like bugfuck idiotic. Like he's just like, right. you know, like gambling the whole spaceship away on this nine-year-old he just met because he's got a feeling he's going to win a pod race. And the dynamic you have between him and Obi-Wan is like, Obi-Wan is this long-suffering, quite stuffy, sensible, smug 20-something who's just like grown that personality because it's the only way to withstand his like hippie, right. his hippie mentor running around being like, hey guys, I found this great new way to start a revolution on this planet. And it's like, no, we have a mission. (laughs) I do think that uh, Ewan McGregor's reputation as having been so catastrophically bad in these films. He's much better than I remembered from a few years ago. Because I think when you first rewatch this as an adult, the first scene he has is just so jarring because he, he has to just full on deliver a few lines that are like, you just have to get into the mindset of watching The Phantom Menace because a good three quarters of the dialogue is just not something a person would ever say. It's <laughs> right. like watching something that's been translated. Yes, from human speak into George Lucas speak, <laughs> which is not the same. Yeah. Which is really hard on the kid because, I, I mean, like Jake Lloyd, the kid who plays Anakin, he's not like, oh wow, he's blown me away as a child actor performance, but he's nowhere near as bad as people were trying to make out at the time. It is not his fault. Like he, I thought he was completely fine. fine. Like I mean, he's very sort of ah shucks, you know, like a nineteen fifties kid. But it wasn't like he is so not the problem with this film. (laughs) That is not the issue at all. Also, he and all the other kids have to run around saying fucking yippee all the time. Yeah, they say yippee like five times in this movie, and I was like, this is fascinating. I guess we just have to accept that that is a commonly used slang term on Tatooine. You see, there's several times where people are like, oh, Bantha Pudu, and it's like, people use the word Pudu as like a clearly like G-rated swear word, because it sounds like poop. But I think it's meant to be fodder, so it's like, they've like made a sound that sounds like poop, but it's not poop, because that would be like a step too far. (laughs) Oh my god. Yeah. It's just, just wild. But again, it was interesting to watch it, because I remembered much more, and this probably is related to the fact that I don't know if I ever saw this a second time. I really just can't remember. But if I did, it probably was very shortly after it was first released. But of course, the second and third ones came out when we were a little bit older. And I think we have discussed before on this podcast that the third one was definitely the first time I remember having a reaction to something, to a film, that was, oh my god, what an awful movie. Yeah, me too, because it was like age-wise... Like, when the second one came out, I was like, this is bad. And when the third one came out, I was like, this is fucking bad. But that was also age, because when I came to rewatch them as an adult, the third one is definitely the best of the three. Like, it's the one where you can actually see it, like, they start to be able to actually execute the concepts that are good. (laughs) Right. But I think I probably remember better from those how awful the dialogue was. And Mm. so then retroactively applied that to this one, right? Because... Of course, all the dialogue and all of them is bad. And that was sort of my vague memory of it. But the structural stuff, I did not recall because I haven't seen this in, you know, 18 years or whatever. And it genuinely was fascinating to me to watch all of these different vague plot strands unspooling at the same time. And yet none of them actually has anything real going on. And it's all clearly just set up for the future stuff. And I would just be fascinated to know 
and this is a, such a hypothetical, impossible question, but, like, if the, he had tried to do this now, what this movie would have looked like, because yeah. it just would not well, as have a miniseries. But the thing way. is, like, every single idea, apart from the Gungans, which I think we can talk about that in a second, but you can literally remove the Gungans, but every idea in this film is good. It's just, like, the way the story unfolds doesn't work in the format of a single two-hour-long movie because there's too many storylines and it doesn't have a structure. And I feel like if there was a structural edit where you either do the miniseries thing or you figure out some way to, like, make the stories actually have emotional weight. You know, there were a lot of storylines in, you know, the last couple of Star Wars movies and it was fine. And it's also the fact that, like, it's simultaneously, I think the most childish Star Wars movie. Like, all of them are suitable for kids. The original trilogy, like, especially the first film, there's loads of stuff where it's like, oh, here's, like, a funny slapstick joke. And that's wonderful. Like, I love that. And I think it's silly when people complain that there was some weird slapstick in The Last Jedi or whatever. Like, of course there was. But with this, it feels like a kid's movie while also having this really significant subplot about, like, a trade blockade. (laughs) And it's... I remember, even though I loved that as a child, there was no way that I could understand what this was. I couldn't fucking understand it now. I had no idea what was going on. I was like, what are you talking about? Because they don't give enough context for any of it. And so then it's just confusing. I was very baffled by all the political intrigue. I mean, obviously, like, Palpatine is bad and is trying to take over. Like, that's not hard to follow. But all of the minutiae, like, the dialogue of people talking about yeah like, it's it's politics the small, because it's, like the, the idea behind it i realize i've said this like nine times already but i really appreciate the long-term arc they have where it's like at this point in the timeline you're setting up this massive galactic wide basically this empire which doesn't really have a centralized government that works anymore and it's being taken over by corruption and capitalism which is a completely solid concept and works within the arc of Star Wars but the way they illustrate it is like like you said it's too much in the minutiae so you have to really think about that theme rather than the film just telling you what the theme is which they should because they tell you really basic stuff like there's a character in this who's just this like the guy who drives Queen Amadella's spaceship, every one of his lines of dialogue was like, oh, look, a spaceship's coming. And it's like, we can tell. So if you can have a person <laughs> telling us a spaceship is coming, you can have something that's not like the intricacies of trade blockade. And instead it's like, wow, isn't it bad that like currently we're in the final age of the world or whatever? Like they have a more <laughs> range, you know? <laughs> well, yeah. And it's funny thinking back on this because I, I definitely had some level of taste as a child And by that, I mean, I don't mean like, oh, I had such good taste. I just mean like, I didn't like everything. Like some kids just will like anything you put in front of them. Like, I think my brothers were kind of like that. I've probably seen like five live action movies in my life when this came out. So. (laughs) Right. And I watched almost exclusively animated films because that was what my parents let us watch. So when I watched a live action movie, it was a big thing and it was exciting. And I don't remember having any opinion about this movie at all. Which is bizarre, because for my entire life, I've had very strong <laughs> opinions about everything. And so the fact that I don't, I definitely did not love it. I don't remember, like, thinking it was appalling, because again, as we were just saying, I feel like the third one was the one where I had that first experience of being like, this is a bad movie. But I don't remember having any sense of an opinion about it either way. 
I do remember everyone else being obsessed with it because they'd all seen Star Wars already and my parents were not Star Wars people. And so I had never seen the original ones. And I was like, what is going on? I do not understand this. Like, this yeah. is beyond my I went, ken. I went to the re-releases whenever they were released in the cinema in like 1998 or whatever. So I was like, I was primed. I knew it was going on. And then once The Phantom Menace came out, I had like about 20 different educational tie-in books. So I've really not changed <laughs> in 15 years. <laughs> yeah, I I did not have that experience at all. But... The fact that I was so ambivalent about it suggests to me that all of the weird political exposition or whatever probably was not helpful. I mean, no, I mean, that stuff completely goes over the head of a child, right? It's like the genius of the Star Wars movies is that they do, obviously, they are appealing to kids and you can love them as a kid. And then the older you grow, the more you can analyze them and see these kind of deeper themes. And with this one, it's like they've kind of just not succeeded in doing that because yes. you're just like, I really love that there's a pod race, but I don't understand what this film is about. And even most adults will right. not be able to tell you, oh, it's about the collapse of empire. I only think that because I spend like hours of my life lying around being an insomniac being like, wow, isn't it amazing that like there's all this foreshadowing towards the collapse of the galactic senate? Like, fuck off. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think that that's really the, that there's a lot of that deep stuff in here, I must say. I think it was the intention, but yeah. Yeah, I think that that is correct, but the execution was perhaps somewhat flawed. I, we should also talk about the Jedi situation. Yes. In this film, which is fucking wild. It's, yeah. What the fuck? It's also, because like this film, George Lucas, he has gone through like a million drafts of the different Star Warses. And like a lot of this is taken from ideas he had in the 70s. And he was like, you can't fit all of this into a movie. But I'm not clear on what the timeline was for what he was thinking the Jedi would be like. But in the kind of original trilogy, the Jedi are these, you know, mystical monks. And it's all very fantasy-ish. And this is we have to assume the historical fact. So either they kind of did a retcon or it's just like they've been forgotten because it's been decades and there's no like historical record. They reintroduced the Jedi as a kind of a combination between cops and diplomats, where when there's like a really weird diplomatic situation, they will send two highly skilled Jedi out to be a combination of lightsaber duelists and ambassadors. And they're meant to be kind of neutral, even though they're being sent to places that are under the galactic senate so like the, there's just like no jurisdiction over the planets where there's just slavery because that's not part of the galactic senate's problem so it is intrinsically completely corrupt and like the film even though i think probably like kids you're not picking up on it this is the part that's illustrated the best because it is really clear even if you're just siding with anakin as a nine-year-old you're like oh the jedi council are really stuffy and they don't understand that you're not meant to be a shithead to a nine-year-old who's just been torn away from his slave mother <laughs> so it's like they the idea is that they've been, they've become detached from their actual kind of moral center and the whole like for the force and nature and so forth because they're living in this urban center with no trees and they're making bad political decisions and working as the lackeys of the Senate. Right. See, again, I think that the stuff with the Jedi is better executed than a lot of the other stuff in this movie. Like the scene where they're just like, we're just not going to train you because um, we don't feel like it definitely successfully illustrates that they're a bunch of shitheads. But all of the like political analysis it's and subtext. background that you just gave definitely is not subtext. in the movie yeah. at all. It is so, so yeah, because like, I do remember as a kid, I was just like, yeah, they're cool. They're cool. The Jedi are cool. <laughs> Right, they are exactly. cool. They have laser swords. <laughs> exactly. And so it's, again, this sort of weird situation where 
he's trying to do this sort of reinterpretation of his own mythology and gets halfway there and it could be really interesting but he doesn't quite succeed and also he fucking introduces the mitochondrian shit like what because during during our recording when they first introduced the midichlorians i was like you know i like all these fanboys just get so mad about midichlorians and you know it's not that big a deal and then once they get towards the end when liam neeson has this like two and a half minute long exposition thing where he's explaining midichlorians it's like yeah this is really pointless i mean obviously it doesn't hugely damage the themes of having the force because you can just ignore it but it's like why did you include this I had no memory of the fact that Anakin was literally Jesus, and I I was shocked. I was shocked and appalled. What? What? Nothing more clearly illustrates the fact that no one was editing this movie than the fact that George Lucas literally was like, I think he's going to be immaculately conceived by particles. (laughs) Okay, that's fine. (laughs) What? And the fact that the whole point of this whole thing is that everything is sort of governed by this religious approach to the universe that obviously isn't religious in the sense that there's a deity, but it's all very religious. And then he's like, it's all about the number of particles in your bloodstream. That's how we can tell if you're a Jedi or not. And you were conceived by them. Like, what the <laughs> fuck? Where did that come from? I was, abs- I literally was losing my mind. It's I was so like, weird. And I was, this? I was actually like, so I was wondering if this was because Shmi Skywalker's role is just for shit. Like she's just like the mum, And then they don't like clean up the fact that, Anakin never goes back to save her from slavery when he's a teenager, which doesn't make sense either. But like, I was wondering if it's just because they just think of the concept of the father as being so powerful that if there was a dead father, it would have to be a character and you just can't do that because everyone's dad is so fucking important in like every movie. Just, But if they just killed, if like, if he just died while she was pregnant or when he was a tiny baby, in a pod racing accident or whatever the fuck, like just whatever, figure it out. That is preferable to the solution that he apparently came up with, which is insane. I, I there's, there's no excuse. There's no excuse for this. I, I am, I am shocked. I guess it would <laughs> solve the Ray Skywalker problem where everyone's like, who is the real parents? And it's like, the point is that it doesn't matter. You fools. <laughs> it's like she was conceived by particles. Yeah. Just, That's where she came from. That would be actually profoundly hilarious. <laughs> JJ got... shows up and he's like, You guys thought <laughs> you were glad that I'm back to make things simple after a complicated movie. But my simple answer is that Ray is midi chlorians. <laughs> oh my god, can you imagine? The entire internet would just implode in on itself and combust. It was just like a 2001 A Space Odyssey sequence where it's just like particles splitting in half. Yes. Yeah. Get some trippy 70s visuals. Be great. Good stuff. Oh, my word. I also, you just have to wonder, and, and you said we were recording, like clearly everybody was just dying to be in a Star Wars movie, which is totally understandable. So even though the dialogue was totally shit they obviously were on board whatever 
But when you get like that page of the script, what are you thinking? What's going through Liam Neeson's mind? I would love to know. One sees this for a lot of sci-fi and fantasy movies, right? Across the spectrum of both good and bad. And like, basically, most actors are not sci-fi or fantasy fans because most people aren't right but it's like you know that at some point you're gonna have to sell something which is midi-chlorians and you often see interviews with someone where they're just like if it's someone who's like bold enough to admit that they don't understand the source material which i respect because when people are like oh i've loved comics forever it's like you don't have to you don't have to love comics (laughs) your job is just to perform it it's fine um but i feel like that is basically it's just like either you're someone who has the skill to deliver doctor who dialogue or not and yes. Liam Neeson clearly has that like down to a T and other people just like I, I think especially you feel bad for Jake Lloyd and Natalie Portman because even though by this point Natalie Portman at 14 or whatever had already done some movies you're still at the age where you needed a director to tell you how to deliver a line and from yes. what one has heard of George Lucas that is not his forte <laughs> um, I mean it's like I think that the best example is like in the first Star Wars movie I remember there was something with Carrie Fisher where she ex- where she explained like how odd it was sometimes to work with George Lucas, not in the weird sort of oh I wasn't allowed to wear a bra way, but like there was this the scene where she's sort of arguing with Vader and then says something mean to like Moff Grand Moff Tarkin, and she was just like how should I deliver this line? I have to like describe him as vile scum or something, and George Lucas was just like just say it like better. So she had to build like this thing in her mind where she was like this angry Italian American girl from New Jersey who was like saw someone <laughs> have, like dropped something in her shoe or something. It was an like, elaborate like world building she given, and it, it's really it's like it's delivered this really angry kind of angry way it works. But it's like she had to give the direction to herself. And if you're like fourteen year old yes. Natalie Portman surrounded by green screens the first time in your life, you're just gonna be like, I guess I'll say the line. <laughs> <laughs> Sure, because the part where she's Why the part not? where she's not talking, her performance is better. Yes, which totally makes sense. Because although I, I am actually very defensive of the accent, I enjoy the accent. I like it. It's fine. Once I remembered why it was there, I was like, oh, yeah, to kind of differentiate between Padme and Amidala, like the yeah the formal dialect. And I mean, I am a Natalie Portman partisan. So, I mean, I don't, not that I think that she's like great at this movie or anything, obviously, but again, like her. she, I like her a lot and this is not her fault. No. So, <laughs> not at all. Did you see the Saturday Night Live sketch she did recently? The, um, was the it where she's short. getting angry about people being mean about this? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was very, it was very entertaining. I, again, you'd love to know what what they all think about just the progression of events. I, I mean, She clearly is obviously fine. Her career has been fine. It would just be entertaining to know after you've survived those films. <laughs> what goes through your head when things come up? Ooh. I mean, she survived the best of all the, the youths, obviously. Yeah, I think in it, we should move on to some of the more harsh criticisms in a second, but first yes. I just want to throw my 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 praise at Naboo a little bit more. Because okay, there's two things I really liked, one of which I did kind of already mention in the commentary. One of those things is the handmaidens, which I that is the main thing I would like to see more of. Because the whole concept of the handmaidens is really cool. And I think the the thing where they swap out Amidala for someone else is just like it's a really solid, like fun fairy tale concept to have a double and it works really well with the costumes. But like the idea is that like, the whole of 
all the humans in Naboo are almost always ruled by a teenage girl queen who's the head of state, which is wild. Um, and they, they're a bunch of aristocrat diplomats who go to, you know, diplomacy school. And then one of them, I think, gets elected, as far as I recall. So it's like you have a 14-year-old in charge. And obviously there's all these other senators, but it's like, it's just so interesting and teenage girl focused and bizarre. And I just would love to see just a whole movie that was about her. And the second thing I really like kind of ties into the costumes, which is I really appreciate kind of the the way it felt fits into the timeline as sort of the the final luxurious point of the galactic kind of senatorial empire before it just all goes to shit because these movies like there is such a difference in the aesthetic between the original trilogy even though it's coherent with the overall look like you can tell it's the star wars universe but everything in the original trilogy is like trashy and kind of messy and looks lived in which is the point but that's because it's after being ruled by an oppressive empire for 30 years. No one's really poor. And in this, it's like, oh, this is what everything looked like when there was luxury just before the fall of the empire. And it's just such an interesting, like, immediate visual cue to see Naboo and all these beautiful kind of temples and palaces and gowns and what have you. Yeah, I, the costumes are absolutely the best part of this film. I don't think that's a controversial no. statement. Everything Natalie Portman wears is so incredible. Her her main red outfit was definitely the... Genuinely iconic. I, yeah, I mean, that was the thing that I remember most vividly from being a kid, that everyone was so obsessed with that. And I also thought that was, even as a very ambivalent child, like thought that was really, really cool and we all loved her. Which is impressive since she gets so little to do in this movie. And I totally agree about The Handmaids too. It's too bad that this movie was made by George Lucas because a different film in a better Hollywood yeah. could have been really cool. A bunch of really politically smart, well-trained women aged 14 to 20 hanging out all the time and going on space adventures while wearing amazing outfits. Like, just so good. Yeah. And and the switching thing, yeah. which we were saying on the on the commentary, I cannot remember whether I knew about the the doubling. Yeah. Or at what point in the film I figured it out. Because it's very obvious once you see her like face close up that it's going on. But I was 10. So I do not remember <laughs> if I had figured it out. I wish I could recall. But it's just, it's really clever. And obviously also fun that the main double was Kira Knightley yeah. and wound up being Kira Knightley, which is completely just a random chance thing, but it's just a cool film trivia thing that everyone obviously now knows. They do make her look a lot like her. Well, there's a cute story about like her mom obviously always went with her to sets when she was under 18. And like, apparently there was a point where like her mom mistook Natalie Portman for her. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yeah, that's the, that, that whole situation. And, um, Liam Neeson are definitely, I think, unambiguously the the high points of this film. However, <laughs> there's the Gunkins. <laughs> oh my god. I was genuinely shocked. What the fuck? Like, I don't understand how this was allowed to... Real bad. Happen. Like, obviously, the thing that everyone knows about Jar Jar Binks is that it's racist. Yeah. This is just a fact that is everyone who is aware of culture is aware of. But again, I haven't seen this since I was a small child. 
And I, I was, the second he opened his mouth and started talking, I was like, oh my fucking God, this is so much worse than I had recalled or sort of envisioned in the intervening years. The whole situation is so inexplicably offensive. I was And there's like there's three bottled. sets of different racist aliens. Right. Because the, the Trade Federation Namoidians are the least bad of the three. But it's like they they have a variety of accents, but the main one was apparently copying a Thai accent. But I think basically anyone from the West is interpreting that as Chinese. And it sounds, yeah. it just has like a weird subtext to it. And it, it doesn't, it's not clear why they felt the need to do that. And then there's the slave owner alien who is just, it's like he was created specifically from anti-Semitic imagery. But like there's all this background where it's like, oh yeah, we put together all these different concepts to find this like unique alien. And it's like, you may have thought that, but subtextually there was literally one way this went. <laughs> and it's not it's good. It's unbelievable. And in other, it's like fascinating because like in other languages, they give these three aliens different accents but each of them is also a racial stereotype for like another country so it's like why would you don't why would you do this <laughs> yeah i genuinely like i almost don't even know what to say because it was so appalling that i was actually surprised which i was not expecting because again it wasn't like i didn't know about this but it was so egregious it makes me wonder if relatively soon people are gonna like, because obviously this is something that a lot of Harry Potter fans think now, but if people like revisiting the Harry Potter movies or watching them for the first time as teenagers now are going to be like, wow, the goblins are anti-Semitic. Yeah. Because like at the time yeah. that wasn't part of the discourse and now it's like people are like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Real bad. I haven't seen those movies in a long time because I never liked them very much except for the third one because Quaron is the best. But this is just so central and so unnecessary. I mean, we kept saying this watching it, but you literally could delete it from the movie. Yeah. And it would make no difference. Because narratively, Jar Jar Binks isn't necessary because the role he has is basically when Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan kind of land on Naboo, his role is to take them to the Gunkins, who are not necessary. And then that's like a stopping off point in their route to the rest of the story. And then they bring Jar Jar with them. But Jar Jar is very clearly, like, his actual role is not remotely narratively pur purposeful. He's there as the comic relief. But in the other movies, the comic relief is generally a droid, right? And the droids actually do have a plot-like reason. And also, BB-8 is a bajillion times more charming than Jar Jar Binks, who literally does not have a redeeming feature. Because he's really annoying. He's not funny. He visually doesn't look great because the CGI is a bit weird. But that's, you know, I can allow that because time has changed since 1999. And he's racist. And it's like, whenever he's in a scene, you're like, why is he there? And you can just remove the Gungan thing and it would improve the whole film. Because the, the final action sequence, like the final battle, is happening on four fronts. Because you have the Gungans who are literally being used as cannon fodder. And they that means they have to be like, well, you know, the humans and the Gungans don't interact much on Naboo. But they don't go into explaining what that means. But then it's like, oh, they suddenly agree to fight this battle to save the humans based on like nothing. So they fight this battle, and then also there's the battle that Liam Neeson and like Qui Gon Jinn and Obi Wan are doing. Then there's also the Queen going into the into the palace chamber, and then there's Anakin going into space. So it's like four happening at once. The Gunkins you don't need to be be there at all. Remove them. Remove them from the whole film. 
Yeah, it's really bizarre. I mean, their city is very beautifully designed. That is the one good thing I can say, but remove it. (laughs) Yeah. And historically, Star Wars movies end with a space fight Mm. while simultaneously a lightsaber fight between two or perhaps three people is going on simultaneously. Like, that's usually how the movies climax. And it's fine. That's the sort of standard action movie type thing is to have a smaller thing and a bigger thing going on at the same time. Cut back and forth between them. The audience can follow. Yeah. Like, whatever. But this is just, like, so much happening at once. And the Gungan fight is a kind of, like, Lord of the Ringsy type thing like they're on a big plane and there are these like weird animals but you don't like... have any emotional connection to it because i right, feel, i so... feel like it's fine to have the three right because you know you've got to deal with the federation sh- ships which are orbiting so i feel like it's fine to see like anakin do some piloting that's cool amadal is enough of a contrast because she's in the chambers and it looks different and she's got her own storyline going on that works and then obviously the lightsaber battle is the best part so it's like that's fine but then they keep interrupting the action to be like here's a lawn with a bunch of ships like <laughs> floating above the lawn. <laughs> but even with like even having the two other things going on is sort of overburdening the movie because as we were saying, that scene with Darth Maul, who we have not even discussed, oh my word, hold that thought for a moment. And Qui-Gon is so obviously the best part and that isn't allowed to really breathe because there's so much else going on so like even two extra things is sort of too much for that bit and then again when you add the lawn it's just so excessive and makes you think that George Lucas directing it doesn't understand how movies work which is astonishing because he made Star Wars well his wife edited the first film like she made the structure <laughs> right right i mean yeah it's it really makes you sort of aware of how collaborative filmmaking is as an enterprise and that then when one person gets hold of everything yeah how badly it can go yeah sometimes cause... it goes really well and other times it's like you really know how to collaborate with you know designers and stuff but not with editing <laughs> yeah. yeah um but darth maul we sh- we should sort yeah. of sidebar here for a second he was to the the children watching this film in 99, 99 2000 yeah. he was it he was the thing and he is in this movie for like five to ten minutes. I was so entertained by this because he is completely what I remember, along with like Amidala and Quagunshin dying is basically it, and Jar Jar Binks being terrible. And he literally has like two to three scenes. He is the perfect amazed. distillation of a Star Wars star because it's. I mean, Boba Fett. I feel set the scene for this without Boba Fett isn't any good. Like he's not good, and the only thing that's good, no. like cool about him is he has a jetpack. Like, he doesn't have a role. But Phasma in the new movies is this because she has a very minor role, and like Darth Maul, she only has to do one thing, and that's look cool. 
He has three lines of dialogue. He does not have any backstory. We don't know what his relationship is with Darsidious. It does not matter. He just looks really cool and has an awesome lightsaber. (laughs) And like, I don't really get the Phasma thing either, to be perfectly honest. Like, I think Gwendolyn Christie is really great. So I'm perfectly happy for her to ride the coattails of this thing. Congratulations. I like her because she's butch, evil, and shiny. Yeah, like, fine. But the fact that she's one of the people on the main press tour is baffling to me, given her screen time. I mean, I imagine I think it's, it's just that she's, she's a woman charming. and she's good at doing interviews, you know? Yes. Because they don't want to have eight men and rain. <laughs> I am not offended by this. It's just, I don't really, I don't fully get the whole thing, whatever. Whereas with this, I get it. Because in he makes good use of his screen time, shall we say. All he does is do badass lightsaber fights, and it's awesome. It's great. I fully understand why the children of America and the wider world imprinted on this. Also, he has the weirdo tattoos on his face and horns. Like, just A-plus job to everyone involved. Fantastic. Gosh, I salute icon. you. Yes. <laughs> Oh my god, and the eyes. I remember that also. We were all like, oh, he's got yellow eyes. Like, there's just a whole, it did a really good job of creating something that would both terrify and sort of entrance children without being too actually, like, like genuinely terrifying in mm-hmm. a way that was not appealing. Um, and then he gets cut in half. It's perfect. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Which I also vividly remember being sort of traumatized by in a mild way because, you know, bodies being cut in half were not something I was taking in very much as a 10 year old. So, <laughs> But I really was amused by how little he was in it. I had no recollection of it being that minor role. I was like, oh, I don't remember this. Which I guess gets to the fact that there's also basically no bad guy in this movie, which is sort of hitting me now. There I mean, the bad guy is the capitalism guys. that is encroaching upon the decaying society. You are stretching <laughs> yeah. real far with that one. Like, there's just not... There, there is no discussion of capitalism in no, this film. No, no. I, do, I did and... really enjoy um, Ian McDermott's pantomime villain performance as Palpatine sort of very good. <laughs> hissing in Matthew Portman's ears. Good. Like, well done. You've really... you've given precisely the right performance for this role <laughs> yeah why anyone trusts that dude to do anything is really beyond me i would not trust him as far as i could throw him but there will be sort of like minor bad guys who pop up and then vanish as the story moves from place to place but the the bad guy is sort of just this like encroaching darkness or whatever which is fine, but in terms of like blockbuster filmmaking, you kind of need an antagonist, which is a problem for this. I guess their issue is that like the antagonist is Anakin, right? But that's not well. The antagonist is work. Palpatine, but like, the problem is it's because it's like if this was season one of the <laughs> of the miniseries, right. it's like we know that Palpatine's like, oh, there's something mysterious going on with him, and it's like the finale is like, oh, actually, I'm evil, and then season two, you know, he's the supervillain. So right, you know. Well, it's it's interesting to think about in contrast to the Force Awakens, where they immediately introduce mm. like such an unbelievably compelling antagonist. Yeah, 
and it's structured in such a sort of classical way. Yeah, it's like a really simply neatly structured movie. Yeah, that which is completely a compliment. Yeah. I, like coming from me, I think that movie is really, really, really good, as I have said before, and knows what it's doing. And I don't really buy the critique from people that like it's too derivative of the old ones. Like it knows what it's doing. No, I think it's and, wonderful. I mean, the only thing I was like, oh yeah, no, the part where they magically are like, oh, here's an exhaust vent to blow up the planet is a bit like meh. But apart from that, it is like, all whatever. Like, it's great. It completely yeah. twists stuff and it feels really fresh. And right. Rose's introduction is tremendous. And I kept thinking about it watching this because it literally is like, haha, it's come from another planet. Like they're just so completely just different species of thing. It, uh, yeah, it's fascinating how sort of far Hollywood has gotten in this period. Not that either of these films is typical of a Hollywood No, film it's not, because I mean, there were amazing eras. blockbuster movies coming out in the 90s and 2000s, and these were given bad reviews at the time. <laughs> so Right, but I, so I don't mean that, like, they're, they're representative of, like, a, a median, but in the sense that I don't think The Force Awakens would have been made at the time. No, no. And this would not be made now, like, they're just a, a certain things have changed yeah that, that's interesting to sort of think about and the skill of skills of the filmmakers involved in the various various enterprises yeah was, i mean the, the, like you know the the comparison is obvious but the next phantom menace is definitely avatar 2 oh yeah oh my god Whew. that is gonna be just it's painful to think about already can you I, believe if it's good? Like, Jesus. just imagine. I would die. I would die. <laughs> I would just keel over in my seat and they'd have to fucking carry me out on a stretcher. Like, uh, well, yeah, like, that's this the problem with these male filmmaking icons who then just get too much power and money and are allowed to do literally whatever the fuck they want. I mean, it's like Tarantino is like this, obviously, but he's on a different level of filmmaking. Whereas Cameron and George Lucas have the do these huge sci-fi CGI things, which obviously, if done well, can be really fun and entertaining. But if they're bad, there's something uniquely, sort of catastrophically, epically bad about them <laughs> in a way that is just sort of... Both awe-inspiring and excruciating, I would say. So, yeah, Avatar 2 is going to be real great. I can't wait. And and this is a bad film. It's a very bad movie. <laughs> sort of impressive that he did it in a sad, perverse way. But... I mean, I get a lot out of it, as you can probably tell. <laughs> yes, I know. Um, I know. Yeah, but I'm it took a long you. time. Because there was a long <laughs> period before The Force Awakens came out where I was just like, I'm just not really into Star Wars. Like, basically, my entire adult life, I forgot that I was a child Star Wars fanatic. And then The Force yes. Awakens came out and I was like, oh, actually, no, these are amazing. And now I'm old enough to have distance where I'm just like, I can acknowledge the elements of The Phantom Menace that really stimulate me emotionally and intellectually and then just accept that the vast majority of the execution, apart from visual effects and music, are bad. <laughs> right. 
I mean, God, I the, do. the music over the duel at the end is so powerful. Like the whole duel is perfectly executed. Just it's the it's the it's the only part where the kind of the idea that they've got and what happens on screen just are perfectly enmeshed because there's no dialogue, and the whole idea is like we've got this amazingly cool looking lightsaber battle, and you've got this obvious visual cue of Obi-Wan being separated from his master and then the death really works it's really simple you could probably watch it just as a silent movie practically and understand what's happening you could watch the scene isolated and it would work emotionally because it's such a simple arc yeah and actually no I want to talk about lightsaber battles before we finish yes this is something I was remembering to think about while I was watching this movie which is that there are three eras of lightsaber battle in the three trilogies (laughs) I like Morgan's waving and waving a hand at me, but um, I love this because they are both, I think, to a certain extent, somewhat unintentional and also really interesting and kind of illustrative of the different eras of the story. Because in the original movies, the lightsaber battles we see, the th- the thing that's cool is just the fact that it's a lightsaber. It's actually not very good stage fighting. It's very simple fights for the most part, apart from some like you know people are flying around with the force, but like it's not. Oh, best sort of duel ever. But they're also really personal fights, so it's more about the conflict between Darth Vader and Obi-Wan or Darth Vader and Luke. And then once you get to the prequel trilogy, it's massively different because they've got this idea of the Jedi as these incredible martial arts warriors and also they have better technology from, you know, kung fu movies and what have you. So you've got people flying around in wires and it becomes this epic dance sequence, but it's also not emotional at all anymore and it's just them showing off these really cool powers so it kind of ties in with the fact that these films are getting really excited about all the new technology they got for special effects and then in the current movies they've got to the point where it's like they don't see the idea of incredibly impressive in-universe fight choreography as being very important so like a lot of people were like you know Ray isn't good enough or how did Ray suddenly learn how to fight and it's like that's not the point because it's all about the actor's performances Um, So you get like such a great idea of what Rey is like emotionally from the way she fights and you don't need to see a training sequence because it's not a workout movie and the fact that people watched The Force Awakens and then thought that Ryan Johnson ruined her storyline by not giving her a workout movie is ridiculous because she doesn't need the Luke Skywalker like Rocky jump running up and down a hill with her trainer thing. It's like the point is that all of the conflict is internal and so now we have these lightsaber battles, which obviously we've now got to a higher level of fight choreography, but it's more about, you know, themes and feelings. Yes, I agree. I think that that's all correct. And she does have her, her moment of like yeah. playing around with the yeah. thing and slicing off part of Skellig Michael. So <laughs> And it just looks cool. Like they all look cool in different ways because the concept of a laser sword is basically impossible to fuck up. Like it's just, they're yes. all great. It's cool. It's cool to see a lightsaber. The sound really works. Well done. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is something, and I remember thinking this going and seeing The Last Jedi both times I saw it. And like the second time I saw it, I'd already seen it and not loved it. And yet, like there, the two things about Star Wars that have this effect are the like lightsaber sound and then watching it, and the title card and the like trill of the Star mm. Wars music at the beginning. That even though I think I have seen the original Star Wars movies maximum two times through. I have perhaps only seen them seen them once. Like I, this was not a thing in my childhood, 
And yet there is this like lizard brain childhood thing that kicks off that you're like, oh, because John Williams Star is a Wars. genius, and whoever did the sound effects is a genius. Like exactly, just, like, incredible. <laughs> and it there is this just nostalgic thing that even if it it's not like it's not any real nostalgia because like I did watch these as children as a child and my friends watched them and whatever. I remember I had one friend who was really obsessed with Ewoks. <laughs> that's that's adorable. 13, that's actually an appealing part of the movie. Um, but it's not like Lord of the Rings to me, which was the thing I actually was mm. completely obsessed with. They're so good at generating nostalgia. And like the, the beginning of the movie when the the opening title started, I felt that again fully knowing that this movie was not going to be good right so there are elements of these and like i really enjoy watching the lightsaber stuff in these too i think the core in this too the choreography is really well done i think that it is basically impossible to fuck up like you just can't mess it up unfortunately the surrounding material in this film specifically not so great not the Man, best. The scene where but... Qui Gon is just like, "You're not a slave anymore." <laughs> End of sentence. <laughs> but your mother is sorry about that. We're leaving now. Like <laughs> what? What? Oh my god! I wish they'd given hilarious. an explanation for why they can't just kidnap Shmi Skywalker because they don't. They don't show them wearing like an implant that will explode their neck if they try to escape or something, right? Which seems like a no-brainer. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, we've done it. I enjoyed we've that a lot. We've done the first one. Yes. Very, very enjoyable experience. We will see if we get to do the second one. Thank you very much to Eleanor, who funded this enterprise. We don't know who you are, but thank you. This was great. We'll see about next month. This may continue. So, fingers crossed to everyone. If you want to listen to this with commentary and have watched the film yet you can subscribe to our patreon and access that commentary track along with a variety of other things that is at www.patreon.com slash overinvested podcast you can also find us elsewhere on the internet at www.overinvestedpodcast.com on twitter at overinvestedpod and on tumblr at overinvestedpodcast thanks bye